off. Oh, I almost forgot. I'll be right there. We like sports and we don't care who knows. From shooting hoops to the... We have David Sampson joining us, calling in now. Um, all right, let's go. Hi, Mr. Sampson. Yes, this is me. How you doing? Hey, good. How are you? Good. Um, all right, let's see. Yeah, can, we, can you hear us? I'm sorry? Can you hear us? Perfectly. All right, fantastic. Well, welcome to Sports Fans. This is WIBC New Haven Radio. We like sports here with Mr. David Sampson, president of the Miami Marlins and esteemed father of our good friend Hannah Sampson. Uh, so, Mr. Sampson, if you don't mind, we know your time's limited, so maybe we can just get right into it. Uh, no problem. I'm ready. All right. So um, let's just start with, you know, back in 2002, you lead negotiations for the purchase of the Marlins and move in as president. So when you do that, um, what's the process like moving into a new team? How do you assess what the team has, what you need to do to get the team where you want to go, who to keep, who to move on from? Just kind of tell us a little bit about that. Well, you're talking about one of the greatest transactions ever back in 2002. It, it's really the first and only franchise swap that's ever happened. So you had the owner of the Marlins was a man named John Henry. And he sold the Marlins and bought the Red Sox uh, at the same time. Then you had the owner of the Expos, who was Jeffrey Loria. He sold the Expos and bought the Marlins at the same time. So you had two people moving into two new teams, both of whom had been owners before of a Major League Baseball team. And when I, I was with the Montreal Expos for a couple of years, and, and then I, I engineered this deal along with some other important people, not that I'm important, actually. I was the least important guy in the deal, but I was certainly involved in it. And it's, it's a process, right? Anytime you start a new job or walk into a new company, you're walking into a lot of people who um, think they, that everything they do is right and they don't want to change because at the end of the day, everyone fears change more than anything else. And I would only tell you and your listeners that change is the only thing that's guaranteed. So you should embrace change and not fear it. <laughs> so we came in. And we just started doing things the way we thought they should be done. And we were right on a couple things. We were wrong on a couple things. But at the end of the day, we won World Series the next year, which was a lot of fun. And, uh, and we've not been back to the playoffs since. So if I'm going to say that we were smart in 03, that means we've been dumb ever since. So I'd rather say that we've always been the same. And sometimes you get good results and sometimes you don't. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, definitely exciting to come into a franchise and immediately win the next year, especially a pretty big upset uh, over the Yankees in 2003. Um, and similarly, you know, in terms of making player decisions, such baseball is obviously a different sport, a unique sport because it has no salary cap. Uh, that makes it definitely interesting from a management perspective. So with no hard upper limits or max contracts or anything like that, really a lot of freedom um, on the part of guys like you making those decisions. Uh, I guess we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you determine how much a player is worth. Um, especially recently, we've seen um, a lot of really big contracts, and especially um, with the Marlins, um, you guys gave Giancarlo Stanton that very large contract, you know, 13 years, 325 million. Uh, so I was wondering if you could speak to that, you know, how you evaluate a player, um, especially in the absence of a salary cap. So I don't think salary cap should have anything to do with how you value a player. So just because you've got, let me, let me give you a great example. Just because you have $100 in your pocket, when you go into a store and you see a piece of clothing, let's say a shirt, 
and you think that shirt is nice, but it shouldn't be more than $40, just because you have $100 doesn't mean you're going to spend it on the shirt. So the salary cap really has nothing to do with whether or not and how we value a player. So the, the, re, the way we value players is we pay players what we think they deserve, how they fit into the general payroll of our team, both this year and going forward, and whether or not that contract can be movable in a scenario where you want to trade that player. So it's the concept of being marked to market, actually. So if you can trade a player with a contract and not have to take any money back and not have to pay part of the contract, that means the player is marked to market. Some players are worth more than what they're paid. Some players are worth less than what they're paid. And we try to pay players exactly as they're worth. We get it right sometimes. We get it wrong sometimes. Giancarlo Stan's a great example. Uh, if he were a free agent right now, he'd get way more than what we're paying him, even though he has the biggest contract in the history of professional sports. I assume that contract will be surpassed at some one point or another because all records are made to be broken. But we paid him an amount that we felt comfortable with and that met the three criteria that I laid out to you just now. Yeah, so I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about those criteria in terms of how do you end up settling on a final number, right? I mean, you have both sides obviously coming to the table in negotiations, um, you know, agents coming in with their demands, then you guys on the flip side. I mean, how, how do you guys end up on a number like $325 million for 13 years? Well, it's the same thing as when you got. I keep hearing a vibration, so I don't know if you guys can hear me. Yeah, we, um, we can hear you fine. Okay, there's a, it's like when you buy a house. Uh, there's a negotiation. You have a buyer and a seller, and let's say your first bid is $250,000, but they want $350,000. Well, probably you're both right that you could buy 250 They could sell it for 350 but then you start talking and, and negotiating and going back and forth, and eventually you end up, let's say, at 300 One party says, wow, I really wanted to only pay 250 and one party says, man, I really wanted to get 350 So it's a compromise. So Stan wanted more. We wanted to give less. And we ended up there. And we wanted to make him a Marlin for life. We wanted him to be in the Hall of Fame as a Marlin because we think his career was on a Hall of Fame trajectory, and we still do. So if you ask him, he would say that he wanted more. If you ask me, I'll say we wanted to give less. But somewhere in there is where deals get made. And dealing with agents and players and contracts, it's really no different than buying a business or selling a business, or buying or selling a house. You, you just go in. If two people want to get something done, I guess this is the lesson that's true, not just in baseball, but any business. If two sides really want a deal to happen, then a deal is going to happen. But if one side is either neutral or negative toward a deal happening, then I promise you a deal will not happen. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess uh, in a similar vein, you know, at least to evaluating players, uh, something that at least it would appear to me, the Marlins are one of the, the last teams in the league to really um, incorporate baseball analytics into their decision-making process. And so I'm curious if you could talk about that a little bit, not necessarily in the context um, of contract negotiations with players, but um, at least in the context of your role as president and, and how baseball analytics is being integrated into the Marlins operations um, and things like that. Yeah, so that's a pretty common misconception. Uh, I would. A lot of publications have the Marlins as sort of late to the to the analytic party. We just didn't do a lot of PR about it. Uh, we had analytics people. We had uh, a, a department of people who would who would look at stats and talk to us. I never believed in the concept that that some 
fans would call Moneyball. To me, that's not an accurate reflection. A, the movie is not accurate at all in the real world, which we could talk about anytime you want. But B, the fact is that we had people who were helping us as part of the decision-making process. So we would not, and to this day we still do not, rely solely on analytics. But back in the day, including up to today, we use it as one of the arrows in our quiver. So it gives us information, but we still use our eyes and our ears and our mouths to try to ascertain where to get get the best advantage we can uh, in both signing players, keeping players, and developing systems to, to have players succeed. But after all is said and done, many franchises are much more heavily reliant on analytics. Some of them are more successful than we are. Some of them are less successful than we are. There really is no magic pill that any team, I would say, uh, um, has, because then, of course, we'd all take it. All right, well, thank you for clearing up that misconception. Kind of in, the, in a similar vein, talking about personnel decisions, um, but I guess the opposite of analytics almost. When you're looking at players, how much do you weigh the players' talents and statistics and obvious numbers versus, um, I guess, their character or kind of what you know about who they are and what they bring personality-wise to the team? It's hard, right? You don't know anyone until you live with them. Yeah. So you do your homework. Uh, you, you, you speak to people who know them. You speak to character references when you're drafting kids out of high school or college. You speak to their coaches. You speak to their family and their friends. With major league players who you're trading for, you speak to their old teammates or their old manager or old general manager. But, boy, at the end of the day, uh, we've, we've signed some people that we thought would be great guys, and they were complete, absolute pricks. Uh, oh, can I say that on the radio? Is that a George Carlin word? No, nah, every, every word's a George Carlin. No, nah, I mean, just kidding. Every word's okay on our, ra- <laughs> on our radio show. We'll bleep it out if we have to. Are you, are you, you go, bleep You can beep <laughs> yeah. that? Yeah. Um, are we live? No, we, are, we are live, yeah. I know, I'm just kidding. So, you know, there are players who we, uh, who we thought would be great who were not, and there are players who we thought would have a problem but we were willing to take the chance, and they turn out to be some of the best teammates and, and players we've ever had. So you make your best decision. Guys, it's really a lot like dating, isn't it? You do your best to make a good decision that you think is right, and one day you wake up and say, wow, this person is not who I thought, or I'm not happy, or it's not working out, and that's when trades happen, and that's when releases happen. Yeah, I mean, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's definitely hard to predict, especially such an intangible aspect of a club, bringing in, like uh, players who are key leaders in the clubhouse and I guess also in the same you know similar concept uh, of intangibles I'm curious if you could talk a little about hiring a manager right I mean so since your time at the Marlins you guys hired Joe Girardi in 2005 um, who was one of the younger managers in the league and then he went on to win manager of the year award in 2006 and then uh, the team let him go that very same year and you guys have been few uh, or rather been through a few managers since then uh, so I'm curious if, <laughs> if you could talk about what goes into to hiring a manager. Um, the Did decision... you ask that with a straight face? Yeah. Uh, it's radio, so I'll never know. But you actually just said that we've been through a few managers since then. That was very politically correct. Um, I am the greatest guy at hiring managers because I do it every year. So, I, I mean, uh, so it really, I've gotten super good at it. Um, Yale really breeds political correctness, so... It is, uh, it's a very hard thing, and uh, continuity and stability are two things that we've lacked as a franchise, and we have now with Don Mattingly as our manager. I sort of went public saying that he's the last manager I'll ever hire, 
Um, and I think that's probably right, because if it comes time for him to be fired, I assume I will be fired five minutes before he's fired. Right. Um, or five minutes after. Uh, but it's... Um, it's it, <laughs> You try to get it right. Again, no one goes into marriage thinking they're going to get divorced, but 50% of the time, divorce happens. And one of, one of the things I believe in is, is the concept of ripping off the Band-Aid. And uh, there, there are times when it hurts a lot to fire someone, but you think it's the right thing to do. And I, I, I must tell you, with all the firings we've done, I think they were all the right thing to do at that time. And... All the hirings we've done felt like they were right at that time. We've just had a hard time keeping that time going. So that's what I hope we have in Mattingly, a guy who is the right guy at the right time, and it keeps being that time for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see. I mean, the Marlins have definitely been looking up uh, in recent years. Yeah, um, shifting tone a little bit, uh, this might be a bit of a sensitive question, but you know, obviously, the Jose Fernandez tragedy earlier this year um, just kind of reminded everyone that there's so much more to every than just baseball. But I guess as um, the president of the team, how do you react and handle that throughout the whole franchise? And how do you uh, be there and support the team and the staff and everyone kind of in that moment of crisis? You know, that was a day I'll never forget. Uh September 25th, I would say, of, of 2016, I would say was probably the worst day of my career. And uh, I just, you know, a call came in at 5.45 a.m. from uh, Mike Hill, our president of operations, and he was on a conference call with a officer from the Fish and Wildlife Department, and they were calling us from the scene of a boating accident, um, saying that they think that there has been, there has been a, a fatality, and they think that it's... Uh, one of our players, and I just, I was asleep, and, and I just said, well, who? And he said, we think it's Jose Fernandez, and, uh, but they couldn't identify him, and we had to identify him through tattoos and, and ID, etc. Um, yeah, did you guys ever hear of a movie called Old School? Yes. Did you ever see it with Will Ferrell? Yes. Yeah, yeah definitely. Mm-hmm. So one of the great scenes in old school is when they're doing uh, the competitions, and one of the competitions is the debate competition. And Will Ferrell wins the debate by going into this sort of transient state. He's in like in a trance, and he sounds so intelligent, and he doesn't remember anything that went on. Right. Sort of that day was that for me. I, I, I have a hard time putting together the pieces of that day. I just know that I... Once we knew that it was our Jose Fernandez, I just remember telling my wife and getting in the shower, and all of a sudden I was picking up Mike Hill at his house, and we were going into work, and then we were telling players, and then we were having a press conference, and then we were going to see his mother, and then we were trying to figure out what to do for to honor him, and we had a game the next day, and uh, I, it just became this this blur of a day that both passed quickly and was in slow motion. And the way you do it, I guess you just, it's instinctual. You know, people were counting on me to be the leader. And if you're going to be a leader, you have to lead when times are crappy and when times are great. And so that was a bad, bad time. And I just remember knowing that I had to keep myself together and I had to show the world because I had an idea that this was going to be a much bigger deal than, than anyone realized. And, uh, 
the spotlight was on us, and I think the Marlins organization as a whole did a did a did a a, a commendable job. Everybody from from the assistant to the traveling secretary to to the owner of the team in in dealing with with that sort of tragedy. But the truth is, guys, it's still going on. You know, there's a big patch on our uniforms right now on the left heart. We think about him every day, and uh, opening day is going to be tough, and the All Star game is going to be tough. But you just the way leaders lead is you just find a way to get through it and you navigate what I really consider to be unnavigable waters. But, you know, someone's got to do it. So I guess it was me. Yeah, well, thank you for that. We know it's a difficult question. It's definitely a tragedy uh, for the baseball world in general, let alone those uh, closer to Jose. Um, so I guess to, to take it back to a slightly, I don't want to say lighter air necessarily, but uh, we actually we had the privilege a couple weeks ago of talking to Sandy Alderson uh, about the proposed rule changes at the time. Uh, two major league baseball, uh, two of those, which of those have been, uh, I guess, ratified is the word I'm looking for. Uh, so we're curious to hear your thoughts um, on the rule changes, what you think they do for the game, if you think they're the right the right moves, um, and where you think baseball's headed in general. So Sandy and I are on a committee together called the Competition Committee, and that committee is charged with um, coming up with changes to the game on field that will or will prove to be or are better for the game in whatever capacity, whether it's pace of game, whether it's um, more offense, more defense, fewer runs, uh, better pitching, whatever, whatever we think is necessary to tweak the game, we try to come up with rules that will reflect that tweak and result in further tweaks. So I love every rule change. I think there needs to be more. I think that pace of action I call it pace of action. People call it pace of game. Uh, I don't mind when games are three hours per se, but I would like people to be less distracted and, and less apt to change the channel or close the app, MLB.com. And the way to do that is to have more action where you feel like you can't turn away because something cool could happen uh, on the next pitch or at the next moment. So not every rule will have its intended consequences, but most will. So we, what we do is we make rule changes, we work with the union, we, we implement the rule changes, and then we see what happens. And then you tweak them. Like Instant Replay, we've tweaked every year since it got approved. Things like the no, no ball intentional walk, that's not going to be tweaked, that's just a change. Believe me, three months from now, no one will remember the fact that you used to have to pitch four balls to get someone on first for an intentional walk. So part of our job, and Sandy's really good at what he does, and part of the, that committee's job is not, is not to be bogged down by the fact that no one wants change. And it's, it's actually a good segue back to what we started talking about, which is everyone's scared of change, whether it's in a company or in their life, just period. And people are very reluctant for baseball to change, but we have to. If we, don't, if we want our sport to keep growing, we have to change. And, and the rules are designed to help people be entertained by the game. Yeah, and I definitely agree that baseball, uh, you know, obviously baseball has been around for such a long time and purists always hesitant to uh, let the game change. Although I, I will say I'm a little skeptical, uh, at least, I mean, the intentional walk rule, I don't necessarily think will actually, you know, alter the pace of the game that much, right? I mean, we're talking about like three, you know, I don't know, five seconds, whatever it's going to take off the game. And, and they, they happen, it's not that they're rare, um, but they happen at least rare, more more rarely than other other events in the game, uh, but I guess, I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see as new new rules are rolled out uh, each year. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, one more question. 
uh, and then we'll go into a little more fun, some personal questions. But um, you were obviously part of a you know contentious event, which was the Marlins getting their new beautiful Marlins Park. Um, and there's been some kind of criticism and backlash. And how, so how do you see the relationship between city and club? And what do you say to those who maybe think taxpayer money is not well spent on stadiums? Boy, that's a, that's the one question. So the relationship between the city, county, and the team is great. Uh, we're a partnership. And my view of government is that government is there to make a city exactly what its voters want it to be. And people want Miami to be a great city. Then you've got to have sports. You've got to have museums. You've got to have park space. You have to have infrastructure. You have to have public transportation. You have to have convention centers. You have to have off-Broadway shows. You need everything that a great city has. You have to have low-income housing, high-income housing. You have to have great schools, good schools, and schools that are trying to get better. You just need, you need entertainment options. And that's why I always viewed baseball. I never wanted baseball to be the only game in town. I always wanted it to be one of the games in town. And I guess to all people who are concerned, the money that was used, there were no new taxes implemented. There were no tax rates that were increased. And there was no tax money used that wasn't legislatively required to be used for ballparks or convention centers. So no money was taken from policemen or, or hospitals or little kids. That None of that is true. And I think that uh, I respect everyone's right to an opinion. I really do, and especially in my job where everyone thinks they can do it better than I can. <laughs> but the reason I wanted to be a part of this ballpark deal is I wanted there to be baseball in Miami, which in no way was guaranteed. And I wanted it there for my kids and grandkids and, and, and their kids. And that's what we successfully did. And whether or not I have a positive or negative legacy, actually I never even think about. I do what I think is right and I will do it with blinders on and with absolute conviction and let time be the judge. And if the judging is negative, I still sleep very well at night. Well, I really don't sleep well, but that has nothing to do with this. But if I sleep very well at night knowing that I was a part of something uh, spectacular. Yeah, well, thank you so much for that um, inside look. Obviously, no big decision comes without some people criticizing it no matter what. Um, yeah. You guys should know that on campus. Yale is the, is the king campus of that, right? Every decision has people who are in favor or against, and that's because there's intellectual discourse. The problem is when people get, um, they get so angry with the decision that they actually lose their intellect. That bothers me quite a bit uh, when it becomes emotional as opposed to intellectual. So I love intellectual debate. I love Yale and the debates that happen on campus, I do not love when it becomes emotional, though. Yeah, I think uh, I think those of us in the room here would, would tend to agree. But now, I mean, to take it to a totally different direction, um, you know, still revolving around baseball, but a little bit less about the nitty-gritty, we were wondering if you could tell us, you know, why baseball, how, how you got involved in baseball, what you love about it, uh, kind of the story of your involvement. So I'll start with what I love about it. I love the fact that I'm in the entertainment business, and I get to make memories for people. I love the fact that I see, and it sounds like a, like a sappy commercial, but I love the fact that I can walk around a ballpark and I get to see families or, or business partners or clients or single people of all ages uh, make a memory. Sometimes the memories are good, sometimes they're bad, right? And I'm okay with that because when you're in the memory-making business, then you're putting yourself on the line that you're going to try to make a good memory for everyone, but by definition you can't. 
So there are some people who look back and they say, man, I had a bad time at the game or the team sucks or I couldn't get a parking spot or I will, uh, I didn't like who I was with, right? I, I get all that. But for every one of those, there's 10 people who say, wow, I had a moment with my son or I had a moment with my dad or with my girlfriend or boyfriend. That's my favorite part about baseball. It is the ability to, to cause memories to be made by people of all shapes, sizes, and colors. I got involved because I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time. And I think that half of life is being at the right place at the right time, and the other half is knowing when it's time to walk through a door. One of the things that people do in business that's wrong, in my opinion, is they don't see opportunity when it's there, or they're so scared to do it that they don't even walk through the door. So I just got lucky. I saw a door open, and I ran through it, and I put my body in the way so it wouldn't close on me, and I just kept going, you know, head down and, and forward. And it's led me to a you know an 18 year career that that I wouldn't trade for anything. Yeah, um, thanks. And so you're originally from Milwaukee, and then you moved to New York. Growing up, did you have a uh, a favorite baseball team, a hometown fan? I actually love the New York Knicks. I was a basketball guy, a major major NBA fan. I like the Yankees, okay, but I would say I was a much much bigger basketball fan. My dream was to be a uh, an NBA player. But uh, my mother smoked, so I'm only five foot five. So I was never able to become a uh, a major, uh, an NBA player, and that's a tough day, right, for any for any young Jewish kid to know that he's got a better chance of owning a team than of playing on a team, right? That was a very bad day yeah, for me. It's definitely not in, in the genes, yeah. Right, I. But everybody gets there at some point. Um, at least ninety nine percent of the people. So I um I love the Knicks with all my heart and soul and. The way I run the team is actually because of my love of the Knicks and the way I try to help people make memories and have experiences. It's all based on what I would have liked when I was growing up or when I was a young adult or a student in college. The kind of emotional ties I had to the team and what I would have liked the team to have done to make a connection with me, that's how I try to run the Marlins. Yeah, no, I think that's that's admirable. It's it's really cool that that you're able to do that. And I guess uh, we just have one last question for you. Um, which we hope you don't mind talking about. We were hoping you could tell us a little bit about your time on Survivor. Um, little known fact that, of course, the president of the Miami Marlins was, in fact, a contestant on Survivor. Obviously, losing is not fun, but none of us have been on Survivor, so we're hoping you can give us some insight into the experience. So not only did I lose, but I really lost, <laughs> as in first boot. Um, it is a major memory for me. So I'll tell you the whole story. Uh, I Survivor started in the year 2000, and I was at Olympic Stadium in Montreal when it debuted, and I was watching it with our GM at the time, or our assistant general manager at the time. We were like, wow, this show looks interesting. <clears throat> we had seen a commercial for it. We watched it. From that minute, we were hooked, and I've never missed an episode since. And I just said, I'm going to go on that show one day. And instead of just talking about it, I decided to do something about it. And I did what you have to do to go on the show. I applied. Uh, and I sent in a video. And I got a call the next day from some casting people who said, would you really do this? I said, hell yeah. And I flew out to L.A. and spent five days doing screen tests and IQ tests and psychological profiles and on-screen sort of questions and answers and all sorts of stuff. And lo and behold... Uh, before I knew it, there were a few needles in my body. They were giving me some vaccinations, 
And I said, wow, they're only doing that if I'm going to get cast. And sure enough, a few months later, I was on a plane to Manila uh, in the Philippines, and then on a five-hour bus ride, and then a one-hour boat ride. And all of a sudden, you know, Jeff Probst appears and says, welcome to Survivor 28. Uh, and the only thing that bothered me is that uh, I, I was dressed in a blazer and long pants and a long sleeve shirt, and my buff was put on like an ascot because um, I was on the Brains Tribe. So I guess I had to look like I was smart. So being old and, and smart, uh, they named me the leader. And just as, as quickly as I was on the island, I was voted off the island. But I must tell you, the three days I was there, it's no joke, right? There's no food. There's no water. Uh, there's no bed. There's no off-screen. You're on, you're on camera 24 hours a day. They follow you everywhere, including to take a crap. I mean, there's just, there's, it's, uh, it's an unbelievable experience. I think I lost eight pounds in three days, but I made lifelong connections and friends. I'm still in touch. I'm actually running a race with a Survivor castmate of mine who's starring in the new Survivor, which starts in, wow, two days from now. Um, her name is Sarah. And uh, so all of us are in touch. And there's only 498 people who've ever done it. So I feel honored to be part of that club. I, I was lucky to be cast. They were looking for a character like me, I guess, and they got me. And uh, it's exactly what you see on TV, except you don't realize how many people are on the island. There's one cameraman for everyone. There's a sound person for everyone. There's a producer for everyone. There's a lot of bustle and activity going on all the time. There's microphones that are hidden underneath your shirt. So there's all sorts of stuff like that that's cool. Um, but what's, it, what's real is the game, and what's real is how hard it is. And it, it's so much easier from your couch, I cannot even tell you. Um, it's, you know, I took part in one challenge, and I literally, I had to go see the doctor after the challenge. I thought I was dead. Um, little did I know I was getting voted out, but I, I literally thought I was going to physically die. And I, would, I wouldn't trade the experience for anything. It's just part of uh, living your life. So uh, carpe diem would be my message. Yeah, well, we are, we're certainly glad you made it through that experience. Uh, and I guess you mentioned running a race. Before we let you go, we do have to ask. We have it from an inside source that you're planning on doing a 777, which is seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. So maybe maybe give us the scoop on that, um, you know, where each run will be. Yeah, I've not gone public with that yet, so that's really awesome, whoever your breaking source is. Breaking news on We Like yeah, Sports. Well, that is uh, breaking news. So I'm going to... Uh, I am not going to talk about it publicly except to tell you that I am doing that race. So there you go. I guess you, um, you don't have to I'm be going to raise concerned. money for charity, and it's a only 54 people have ever done it in the world, and I'm putting a group of people together with the intent of doing seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. It sounds crazy. My guess is it is crazy. Training actually started today uh, with an off day, so that was a perfect day of, of training for me. Uh, I love doing things that anyone can do, but no one thinks of doing or no one tries. Uh, the only the, everyone, in my opinion, could do this if you got the discipline. Uh, I did an Ironman, uh, which is a lot of swimming, biking, and running, and I think anyone could do that. But it just takes sort of the discipline to get out of bed and you know get off your ass and do something. So it's it should be interesting. I've got about ten months to to get it to get in shape and. We'll see how it goes, but you'll be hearing more about it later. Yeah, well, I guess you don't have to be too concerned about our viewership uh, spreading your secret. And, of course, like any good journalist, I won't give away my source. But 
Mr. Samson. <laughs> You're not allowed to. Yeah, thank you so I've much got for a your few, time. I've got a few thoughts, though, my friend. I'm sure you do. You'll do your digging. Yeah, well, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, we know you're a busy man, so we'll let you go. And uh, good luck in your training. And good luck this season with the Marlins. That looks to be a competitive division. Hey, it's going to be a great year. I really do appreciate it. And uh, good luck with your show, and take care of yourselves. Thanks so much, Mr. Samson. Take care. All right, gentlemen. Bye-bye. Bye. So, viewers, that was... That was Mr. David Sampson, uh, president of the Miami Marlins. Uh, we hope you enjoyed that interview. Uh, and, yeah, I think Zach and I learned a lot, but also it'll give us a chance now in the second half of our show to let you know what's going on this week in sports. Right, Zach? Yeah, so uh, let's get back to our reg- regular scheduled programming. We'll hit you first with the news. Um, in college basketball, we uh, saw the end of the regular season come to a close. We're going on to the conference championships coming on next weekend. And with some news, we got Yale basketball sweeping the weekend, earning – a third seed in the Ivy League playoff, uh, playing Harvard next week. That should be an interesting game, hopefully trying to earn that NCAA playoff or tournament berth for the second year in a row. Yeah, definitely exciting for the Bulldogs. Uh, They'll have a tough road having to beat Harvard and uh, Princeton, uh, assuming Princeton ends up beating Penn. But it's on neutral site uh, in the Palestra. I guess not neutral for Penn, but we'll see how that ultimately ultimately plays out. Uh, And then just other notes quickly. Of course, there's a lot going on in college basketball, but Kansas is ranked number one for the second straight week in the AP polls. Uh, They beat Oklahoma State in a tough one. Of course, they didn't have as much to play for, uh, having locked up the number one spot in the Big 12 tournament and having a pretty solid uh, tournament resume. But uh, it should be an exciting week of conference championships. Uh, Moving on to the NBA, some big news. Kevin Durant was injured last week in a game against the Wizards. Um, It didn't look that serious at first, but he has been diagnosed with a grade 2 MCL injury, which is a partial tear, uh, but not one that needs surgery. Our uh, future doctor... Zach Jacobs could probably tell you more about that, but he's expected to be out about four weeks before being reevaluated. Um, and in the same sense, the Warriors picked up Matt Barnes, um, who started the last game against the Knicks in the place of Durant. So something Zach and I'll get into later talking about what missing Durant will be like. Um, and then another quick note on the NBA is Brandon Jennings signed with the Wizards after being cut by the Knicks, uh, which will be pretty important to them. It's a Wizards team that's been surging, and so hopefully it'll provide their bench unit with some playmaking and scoring that's definitely needed. Yeah, definitely. A team that, despite a horrible bench, has been playing great. Now they've got some improvement to their bench. Should be a really interesting push through the rest of the season. Um, in football news, we have the draft combine finishing up. A lot of impressive performances, but none more so than John Ross, who broke Chris Johnson's nine-year record for the for the 40-yard dash with a blazing 4.22, breaking Chris Johnson's 4.24 originally. Um, unfortunately, he will not be receiving the private island that was advertised, as that offer required him to be wearing Adidas shoes, and he was wearing Nike. That being said, he still has a Nike contract and will go down in history. So good for you, John Ross. Yeah, I read some stuff. I don't think he's too upset about that. Plus, who knows? I mean, maybe he wouldn't have broken the record in Adidas, right? Yeah, you never know. All right, so moving on to winners and losers. Jordan, who do you got as your first winner of the week? All right, Zach. My winner for the week, Northwestern Wildcats basketball. I have a lot of empathy for the Wildcats. Um, they earned really their, or they, they look like they'll be earning their first NCAA tournament bid uh, after a last minute or really last second win against uh, the Michigan Wolverines. Really a great, a great finish. I encourage you to check the highlight out. It was really a, a remarkable play. Um, and considering, you know, Yale earned their first berth in the tournament uh, last year, really, I think, or, or perhaps I think it was their last, their their berth in 50 years or so. Uh, really, I think, important for a school like Northwestern. Uh, really great for their basketball program. I'm pretty excited for them. Yeah, you know, actually, fun fact, Northwestern has hosted the NCAA tournament twice, but never been a part of it. So good for them to finally uh, be going to the dance, as they say. 
Yeah, Zach, what about you? Who's your winner? My winner is uh, is the little guys, as you might say. Last night's Celtics-Suns game saw a jump ball between Isaiah Thomas and Tyler Ulis, both players listed at five foot nine. No firm stats about this, but probably the shortest ever jump ball in the NBA. Um, and furthermore, you have Tyler Ulis hitting that insane game winner at the last second three-point shot over Isaiah Thomas, so ultimately coming up as the winner for that night, although he did lose the jump ball. Yeah, that was a really exciting finish. Uh, again, I encourage everyone to check the highlights out. Really remarkable game. Uh, the Suns hitting a tying layup with about five seconds left, stealing the ball from Thomas, Eulis hitting a three at the end of the game. Really fantastic finish. Really just everything there is to love about basketball in about a minute. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Zach, I'll give you my loser for the week. My loser is Nick Mangold, uh, released by the Jets. Mangold, the Jets center, he's been with them since he was drafted in 2006. That's 11 years or 11 seasons. Uh, I mean, the Jets made a lot of moves this week, cutting a few players. But I think seeing Mangold go is pretty uh, pretty upsetting for Jets fans. I remember Nick Mangold himself who came out saying uh, he was really hoping to, to convince the Jets to let him stay. Uh, of course, you know, he's had some injury problems the last few seasons. Uh, and he's definitely you know on the older side, at least for offensive linemen. But... A shame to see a long-time Jet go, especially for Jet fans, uh, and I wish him the best uh, in free agency. Yeah, I mean, really, it just reminds you of, at the end of the day, sports is a business, and as much emotional attachment as you may have to a player, when they're ch- costing the team more than they can provide on the field, they often just go cut. Uh, my loser um, is the Philadelphia 76ers, and more importantly, their fans. I think that makes two weeks in a row of them making it into the loser column. With Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons being ruled out for the rest of the season, after really a lot of poor transparency with their injuries, Ben Simmons being finally ruled out after a couple a foot injury he was supposed to come back for from, and then an MRI that didn't look as good, getting sidelined indefinitely, and then finally shut down. Joel Embiid, the same thing, a knee injury that originally was just a bruise and swelling, progressing to a tear, I believe, and getting shut down as well. It's just really... Really a poor time to be a 76ers fan after what looked like a really promising start to the season, or as promising as you can be during the process. And uh, with Noel traded, just really a lot of things looking down, despite actually Dario Saric playing pretty well. Yeah, I mean, we keep saying trust the process, trust the process, and I I think Sixers fans still do trust the process, but their trust has definitely been shaken. you know, it's it's been a I mean years now. You know, of this process, and it's it's taking a long time. And of course, it's a lot of potential and a lot of optimism. But injuries like this certainly don't help. And especially the lack of transparency, as you alluded to, also doesn't help uh, Sixers fans' confidence at all. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, still has potential, but not looking as good as it was in the past. Yeah. Uh, so I guess now is a good time for us to move on to the hot clock. For those new viewers, hot clocks where Zach and I each get one. Uh, we ask each other one question. We have not seen the questions before. Uh, we have one minute exactly to respond and make our case. Uh, Zach, do you want to give me your first question? Yeah. So recently, Mark Cuban was quoted as saying Russell Westbrook is not an MVP candidate, throwing a lot of shade at one of the best players in the NBA. Obviously, he is in the MVP discussion, but agree or agree, agree or disagree, he is not a candidate. All right, I'll start my timer now. Zach, I saw that quote. I thought it was an absolute joke. I respect Mark Cuban a lot. I think Mark Cuban's a good guy. I think he does a lot for his team, the Mavericks. I think that's it's it's where is he coming from saying he's not a candidate? This is Russell Westbrook, the first player to potentially average a triple double since Oscar Robertson. He's single handedly carrying the Oklahoma City Thunder to a playoff berth. There's no way anyone to me could argue that he's not a candidate. You could you definitely can make arguments saying he's not the ultimate MVP, and we have time for that MVP to be decided. I, I don't necessarily know how I feel about it. I mean, a lot of good players in the league 
league. Of course, James Harden's had a fantastic season. LeBron always in the mix. But for me, I mean, Mark Cuban, what, what, what basketball season have you been watching to say Russell Westbrook is not a candidate? Russell has, I believe, 30 triple-doubles this season, maybe one more. Uh, I believe that's more than the next four or five players combined. It, it just it seems absurd to me for Mark Cuban to make a statement like that. I believe there there must have been some other motive. He's trying to stir the pot. Mark Cuban, we know, likes to stir the pot. Uh, I just think it's a ridiculous thing for him to say. Um, I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he's necessarily my MVP pick, but I think it's ridiculous to say he's not a candidate. He's definitely going to be in the top three, probably top two, if not win. Um, you know, but I guess that is. You know, when you have your opinions, you have your opinions, and Mark Cuban knows basketball better than we do. So, yeah, I mean, of course, stats aren't shouldn't be everything necessarily in the MVP race, uh, and Westbrook's really doing it alone over there in OKC. But, I mean, how could you not at least think about a guy averaging a triple double? Seems absurd. Um, Zach, I'll give you my question. In yesterday's game against the Warriors, the Knicks played the first half without music, or maybe it was the first quarter. I don't exactly remember. Uh, First half. first half, yeah, to give fans the game in its purest form, as they argued. Uh, Draymond Green came out saying, uh, I believe the quote was something along the line, um, that they need to trash that because that's exactly what it was, kind of really criticizing uh, the Knicks for that decision. But LeBron actually came out today and said he thinks it's really cool that they did that. Uh, so I'm curious what your thoughts are um, on the Knicks doing like that, something like that, and, and really the role, I guess, of music and soundboards and, and scoreboards uh, in professional basketball. Yeah, I mean, I think that Draymond Green came out. I think he said it was disrespectful. I haven't actually watched any of the tape from that game, so I haven't seen what it was like. But, I mean, I'm all for trying new things and trying to, you know, change up the experience and make it better in some way. I think I in no way fault and actually applaud the Knicks for trying to do something cool. And I, you know, cannot say actually whether it worked or not because I haven't seen it yet. But I like the idea. Um I mean, I obviously think there's a reason why we have sound and audio and all these enhancements to the game. They're part of the very fabric of the game right now. When you go to a live game, you just that music is really part of it, pumping everyone up, having noise, you know, the let's get loud, whatever it is. It's a lot of fun. I think it's important to have, um, and I definitely think it plays an important and really valuable role, but I think it's cool to try something new. Um, I like it. I think Draymond Green may have overreacted a little bit. You know, just he can be he can stir the pot, too. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm out here saying Draymond Green, get off the Knicks back one. You're playing on the road. So who are you to make any decisions about what the Knicks do? Right. Second thing is, I mean, I agree that that, you know, the soundboards and such really in every sport is a pretty critical part of the game or really a, it's part of the fabric of the game, I don't think it's necessarily that important. I mean, I'm imagining now, let's say Knicks are a playoff team, right? You have to come into Madison Square Garden. There's no music on the soundboard, and the fans are really into it. Of course, the fans on Sunday were not necessarily really into it. I mean, it's a game against the Warriors. Knicks fans knew they were going to lose, and of course, there's not a lot of energy around this Knicks team right now. But let's imagine we're not even in New York. We're at some other city with a huge fan base, a team that's doing really well, and there's no sound. I mean, all I'm hearing is really loud fans. I'm hearing fans who can hear themselves who are going to even be louder. I think there's no reason um, to criticize the Knicks trying it, especially a franchise like this. The Knicks have really nothing to lose at this point with trying something new in their stadium. And I think it is something that could be really cool for the game. Uh, I mean, sounds are really not something that is part of basketball, at least at a more amateur level. I mean, definitely not in high school. I mean, of course, in some colleges you hear sounds and such, but I think it's really cool for the Knicks to try doing that. Uh, I think LeBron saying it's cool. Of course, LeBron would have to, you know, could play in a game like that and totally hate it. And I think for Draymond, it's really, it's a change that he's not used to, but I think, you know, get off the Knicks back. Yeah, I sure agree with you there. All right. So my next question for you is, um, you know, maybe 
Instant trade deadline overreaction. Who is the better get? Lou Williams for the Rockets or Bojan Bogdanovic for the Wizards, who's been playing surprisingly well? Yeah, I mean, obviously really hard to say, but uh, I mean, Bogdanovic on the Wizards has been fantastic. I don't have his stats in front of me uh, shooting from three, but he's been unbelievable for the Wizards. Um, I think he was like 20 for 34. Or I mean, something some, like yeah, something absolutely absurd, unheard of three points shooting statistics. And of course, Lou Williams, a great acquisition for the Rockets. Um, but I actually think the argument is the Rockets didn't need that much more. I mean, we're looking at a Rockets team with James Harden, not necessarily carrying that, but really, I mean, elevating them to another level of play. It's, a, it's impressive how well the Rockets are playing. The Wizards, I think, needed a lift. Of course, John Wall, Bradley Beal, fantastic players. Um, a great duo, but I think it brings the Wizards this whole new element, this sharpshooter on the outside that I think really changes their game and changes the way opponents play them. And we've seen this Wizards team suddenly, I mean, I say suddenly, it's been already the past several weeks, if not months, um, really a Wizards team that's really surging. And I think adding a new piece, uh, I think big for both teams, I come down on the side that uh, a great acquisition, probably more important to the Wizards. I, I think I tend to agree as much as I love the Lou Williams for the Rockets. I think Bogdanovich has kind of surprisingly provided way more of a needed spark like you said for the wizards who really were just getting crushed out there when their bench was on yeah uh so zach my question is something i alluded to uh in my loser but the jets this past week released nick mangold brandon marshall and darrell revis to make some cap room um i'm curious just to hear your thoughts on that of course a lot of those guys uh longtime jets fan favorites um marshall of course not a longtime jet but definitely it made it obvious that he wants to be in new york and wants to play in new york what does this mean for Jets and Jets fans? And what does this mean for the future uh, of the Jets? I mean, this is a move to clear up cap space, of course. Of course. Sorry, I don't know why I can't speak today. But, I mean, we're letting go of some big players. What are the Jets' plans moving forward? Or what does it look like they are? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing because football, free agency in football is kind of considered a loser's game. I mean, it's really an area where football as a sport, maybe more than any other, is won through the draft and it's a sport where like oftentimes when you pay free agents big money they don't provide that same value and so cutting these guys who admittedly i mean maybe are not the players they once were their names may be bigger than their actual on-field contributions it's just an interesting move by the jets um you know i hope they're able to turn that into some some impact players some things they really need you know it's a team that they have a really strong defense especially up front you know, maybe lacking in other areas. Um, so hopefully they can kind of use that space to do something meaningful. But I kind of think it's maybe not a great move by the Jets, especially when you've had so many down years in a row and are really looked at as such a kind of, you know, trodden on franchise at the moment. Admittedly a proud history, but just not right now not doing so great. It's tough to then also cut some of the fans' favorite players. I mean, you know, it's like like our great guest was saying earlier, sports is an entertainment business as much as it is, you know, athletics. And so I think it's an interesting move. And obviously, if they start to win more, the fans will like it. But it seems bad for the fans now and probably the team. Yeah, I mean, I really wonder where the Jets are going, right? I mean, cutting Revis, I totally understand. As much as he was a big part of our AFC championship runs uh, 2009-2010, he was a huge liability at cornerback last year. Uh, and I think... If they weren't going to move him to safety, which I'm surprised they didn't even really make an attempt to move him to safety, I think it was the right move to let him go. Mangle and Marshall, on the other hand, I don't really see it. I mean, it's a team that goes out in the offseason last year, gets Matt Forte, makes it seem like they really want to make a move here, um, you know, turn themselves into a contender, uh, at least to make the playoffs. Um, 
And of course, we know they have one of the best front sevens in football. So it's a team that I'm not saying they're in win now mode, but a team that has the tools out they're there. Not, to they're win. not a young rebuilding team, right? They're certainly not a young rebuilding team, and they have some of the pieces. I mean, really, the top pieces in the league there right now. I mean, Muhammad Wilkerson, Sheldon Richardson. There's been a lot of rumors uh, surrounding him in terms of being straight. Leonard Williams, uh, and so I'm just curious to see where the Jets end up next year, in, in a, or even for the rest of this off season. Are they? trending towards rebuilding and really breaking apart everything or is this just part of you know exchanging pieces clearing out cap space to make a big move i mean i don't have a ton of faith in jets jets management kind of turning things around but you know they really feel like one of those teams that until they have a reliable quarterback is just not gonna be anything um which you could say about most teams in the league that don't have one but the jets as well yeah, so it kind of feels like they're treading water to me. Well, yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, they have all those quarterbacks on their bench, but we'll, we'll see what ends up happening. Uh, and we're going to cut the hot clock there, guys. Uh, an abbreviated version of the hot clock, considering we had such a wonderful interview with uh, Mr. David Sanson. So, Zach, if it gives us a few minutes here for a little bit of discussion, let's talk a little NBA. Let's do it. All right. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is actually Anthony, da- Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins and this new-look Pelicans. They got their first win with DeMarcus Cousins on the floor last night but it was against the Lakers, last in the West. And actually, DeMarcus Cousins was the only starter with a negative plus-minus at negative 8. Also worth noting that he got thrown out of the game with a few minutes left while they were tied at 97, and the Pelicans kind of only separated from the Lakers in those last few minutes without Cousins. So, that being said, are we seeing, and actually furthermore, they're currently uh, they lost their last four games with Cousins in the lineup, only winning one after he was suspended for his 18th technical foul. Yeah, 18 league leading. So, are we seeing the Pelicans finally starting to come together, or is this trade maybe not as much of a blockbuster as we thought? Yeah, I mean, definitely a little bit premature to say they're coming together because they oh, beat the sure. Lakers, right? Yeah. I mean, th- that's a little bit much, but I will say. I think you have to give it a chance. Uh, I think, I mean, we talked about it briefly. We had the chance to talk about the trade. And we said, obviously, it's, I mean, it's a f- intimidating front court, Davis and, and Cousins. But it's not something that's going to gel immediately because they need to learn how to play together. Um, and I think, I mean, DeMarcus Cousins is not used to playing on a team like this, right? I mean, we, DeMarcus Cousins is coming from a Kings team where DeMarcus Cousins was that team, right? DeMarcus Cousins is getting the ball. He's getting his touches. He needs to score, right? This is a team that's not, he's not necessarily going to be the leader on that team, right? Uh, we're looking. I mean, this is Anthony Davis's team at the end of the day, right? And so I think it really comes down to. I mean, Boogie's a great player. I'm not trying to take away from him, but I think they need to learn how to play together. Uh, I think it's obvious that there are some missing pieces uh, in the backcourt. Um, I'm a little bit. I'm, I'm hesitant to say it was a bad trade. I'm hesitant to start criticizing it. I think we need to give it more time, especially we knew the Pelicans weren't necessarily going to make a run this year. Um, but I think it does at least damper. Uh, the the really the high praise everyone was heaping on the Pelicans, you know, I mean Davis and, and Cousins, this is an unstoppable front court. I think we're seeing that might not be the case. There there needs to be a lot more there. Um but I think Boogie needs to learn how to play in this new team. Yeah, I mean I think especially what we're seeing is something that I maybe touched on two weeks ago when the trade first happened is that everyone immediately wrote them in at that eighth spot. They're gonna shoot up the uh, standings. They now have you know most nights than they play, they have the two best players on the court. And that's still true but they probably don't have the third through eighth best players, um, maybe more. And I think, you know, it's as incredible as those two talents are when you don't have a functional team around them. You don't have perimeter defense. You don't have – I mean, they have a really good point guard, actually a really good defender too in Drew Holiday, but they just are lacking wings. They're lacking depth at point guard, really depth at the big man, really everything you might want from a team other than two stars. 
So, yeah, I mean, we're just not going to see them move up like we thought. You know, that Pelicans pick that the Kings got in the draft or in the trade may be looking a little bit better than people kind of wrote it in originally. Um, but, you know, interesting. Obviously too early to make any firm kind of judgment. Yeah, I will say I still think that this is a team that can go out and beat any team on any night with these two players. Um, I think that that's, that's something that shouldn't be forgotten. I mean, let's say they somehow did jump to an eighth, an eighth seed. Uh, I mean, it's a team that could definitely steal a game or two from the Warriors, right? They they can compete. I mean, if these two guys go off, it's going to be tough to stop them. But that being said, it doesn't look like that's going to be something that happens so often, at least not in the near future. Um, I mean, so we'll, we'll see what the future holds. But I guess uh, just to jump to Golden State quickly, I just mentioned them. Uh, we talked briefly in the opening uh, of our news section how Kevin Durant went down with that MCL sprain. He's going to be out for about four weeks. Uh, he's going to come back for the playoffs. But does this make you worried at all about the Warriors? I mean, what are we thinking, Zach? Um, I mean, there's a lot of things to consider. I think my, my short answer that I'll put up front is no. I think that from the start of the season, they've been destined to make their third consecutive finals trip, and I still think they're going to make it. You know, we saw maybe they didn't gel as quickly in the first seven games or so of the season as everyone thought they would, but that's kind of the history of super teams coming together. Um, but it does actually make things a little more interesting. I mean, you have Kevin Durant. You know, he's you know, listed at 6'10", or whatever he tells people to list him as, but probably a 7-footer. He's a huge guy. When you have lower extremity injuries, it's never a guarantee that you're going to, you know, recover from them as expected. Never a guarantee that you're going to have that same, like, explosiveness and quickness that, you know, you have at least certainly not originally. Um, and this is, a, you know, a player that they gave up a lot to get him. I think obviously worth it. You know, they're destroying the league right now, but Without him, they still have three amazing players, but you know a lot less depth than they had in the past. Um, and if they fall from that one seed, which the Spurs are really knocking on the door for, then all of a sudden they go from playing the Nuggets or the Mavericks or the Trailblazers, which would be you know pretty obviously an easy sweep, maybe five games at the most, but wouldn't have to play hard, wouldn't need to play Durant many minutes, could let him rest. To all of a sudden having to play the Thunder or the Grizzlies or maybe even the Clippers, all teams that are kind of hovering in that lower half of the Western Conference or lower half of the playoff spots, I should say. Um, and those are those are series that will challenge them, even if it's a sweep, even if it's you know if only five games. Those will be hard fought games every time, um, especially the Thunder. I mean, I think they've got they've rolled over. And on the scoreboard, but that's a team that they will play physically, especially with the addition of Taj Gibson. They will, at the very least, leave bruises going into the next series, which the Nuggets may not. Yeah, I mean, the ship's definitely not sinking by any means, but I think those two teams you brought up, the Grizzlies and the Thunder, are a nightmare scenario for the, the Warriors to play in the playoffs. I mean, the Grizzlies, very physical team, right? The Grindhouse in Memphis, uh, that's going to take a toll on the Warriors. I mean, and Russell Westbrook is going to play his heart out in that series, especially going against potentially Kevin Durant. It's going to wear them out a lot. I do agree. I think the biggest thing is this doesn't necessarily make anyone, and no one should be worried about the Warriors making the finals, right? Nothing's changed. You should still be as worried about them losing to the Spurs, to the Rockets, as you were before. The thing is, it just it's a question now. You know, it's a question of how's Durant going be when he comes back is the team going to come back together uh seamlessly it's, it's just questions right now there's it, no one should be worried in any way the ship is in the same place it's just a question because at the end of the day um you're right they have still three fantastic players on their team um they're a really well coached team and so i don't think anyone should be incredibly worried the one thing i will say before we go on to leon um and our favorite segment <clears throat> is that you know last year i think you could say i mean obviously there's a whole confluence of factors, but a big part, I think, of why they lost in the final ultimately is they went through some really hard series to get there. 
playing against uh, the Thunder, or, yeah, playing against the Thunder and the Clippers. I, I'm blanking on who else they played, but I know they played some actually really um, not the Clippers. Actually, I know that, but some tough series that kind of left their mark going into the finals where they played a very well-rested Cavs who only played two games, I believe, above the minimum. Obviously, the Cavs will have to play more games, have some more competition to get there too, so they'll be more tired and more banged up as well, assuming they get there, which I also think they will. But just an interesting thing to consider should they lose that one spot. Yeah, I mean, it's also, I mean, just to quickly touch on the Cavs, the Cavs team, unlike the Warriors, with a lot of depth, right? I mean, they just added Darren Williams, so it's a Cavs team with a lot of depth, uh, so it should be interesting to see those two, I mean, potentially come together in the finals. But uh, we're here towards the end of our show, so now we'll give it over to Leon Abani, uh, our version of Tony Reale. Leon, what do you have for us? Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Zach. Um, as you guys know, and all our lovely listeners know, uh, nothing brings me more joy than telling you guys how you messed up and providing cool stats. And so this week, I am happier than the Israeli national baseball team who stunned the baseball world today as the number 41 team in the world and 200 to 1 odd tor- tournament underdogs beat host nation and number three team in the world, South Korea, 2 to 1 in extra innings in the opening game of the World Baseball Classic. We know uh, this has been the year of the upset. Let's see if this group can go all the way too. I, for one, would love to hear uh, MLB Commissioner Manfred say Mazel Tov uh, during a press conference. To uh, start off the corrections, Jordan, while there is no salary cap in the MLB, notably there is a luxury tax, which does place some upper bound on how much teams spend. Uh, Moving on to our esteemed guests today, uh, Mr. David Sampson said during the interview that you don't know anyone until you live with them. I want to emphatically support this statement. This is completely anecdotal, but I definitely did not know uh, how great Jordan and Zach were until I moved in with them two months ago. Moving on to corrections of Mr. Sampson, our guest stated that the American divorce rate is 50%. According to the American Psychological Association, only somewhere between 40 to 50% of American marriages end in divorce. Mr. Sampson also said 99% of people eventually realize they will never make it in the NBA. Only 99.97 of high school basketball players end up making it. I am sure that that number is even higher among the entire population. Jordan uh, was far from clear about Yale basketball's history in the NCAA tournament. In fact, the team's presence in the NCAA tournament last year was their first since 1962. To confirm and clarify Zach's claims about uh, Joel Embiid's left knee injury, uh, the bone bruise he had on that knee has improved while the meniscus tear has become more pronounced. Um, And then finally, I just want to share a really cool stat. Um, Earlier this week, uh, a new record in the NBA uh, was uh, placed when Ricky Rubio had a pretty you know, minor triple-double, 11 points, 13 rebounds, 10 assists Saturday night against the Spurs. But that triple-double was actually the 79th triple-double in the NBA season, uh, and that is a new record. Uh, So it's not just Russell Westbrook carrying the torch there. Yeah, so a lot of triple-doubles this season. Any triple-doubles impressive. Thank you so much, Leon, for your corrections. Uh, Again, this is We Like Sports, 94.3 Radio. Tune in again uh, in a couple weeks. We're off for spring break. Enjoy the start of March Madness. I'm Jordan. I'm Zach. And we'll talk to you guys soon. All right, have a good night. We like sports and we don't care who knows. From the pregame jokes to the wrap-up show. We like sports and we don't care who knows. Football.